Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here with my co-host, Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. How are you? Hi, Carrie. I am good. I am in desperate need of some sheepskin slippers, which I, I realize now, I was like, maybe we can not talk about the weather if I talk about my need for sheepskin slippers, but it's basically connected to the weather <laughs> because it's because suddenly today it's getting cold. But yeah, apart from that, I'm fine. I just, I want some toasty things to put on my feet. How about you? Yeah, there's a nip in the air, which mm-hmm. I, I like a nip. I like a nip. I'm, I'm good. It's it's busy. It's September. Publishing is always really busy this time of year. I don't mind that, but I always get slightly sad that it's not it's not quite back to school because, you know, when you go back to school, you're starting something new. And going back to school and publishing just means like, going back to your inbox and all the things you neglected to do in August that you now like frantically have to do as other emails pour in and as all of your clients send you proposals and things like that. So it's a, it's a busy time, but you know, I'm, I'm getting through it. I'm trying to feel energized. I'm trying to make a lot of to-do lists. That's, that's how life is. Yeah, that's good. Also, I would say that this and the next couple of weeks are going to be an amazing time to spend as much time in parks as you possibly can because the leaves are just starting to turn and it's about to get really gorgeous like all those plants that suddenly their leaves go from green to like fiery red and fiery orange I love it I love that moment of seasonal change before it starts to get too dark at night yeah love the fall leaves yeah it's always the best well seeing as this is not a podcast about the weather before we get into what we are going to talk about Let's get business out of the way. If you like, dear listeners, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com forward slash lit friction, where you will also get access to an extra mini set each month. There are now 32 waiting for you there, and you will also have the chance to suggest themes for us to talk about. You might want to suggest that we do a whole spinoff Patreon about the weather, for instance. I'm sure (laughs) that would be fun and interesting. But now back to mini set 43, and thanks for tuning in. The format for these minisodes between full shows is... Wait, for the I'm next... sorry, but I have to interrupt you and so just realized we've actually never done a show about pathetic fallacy. <laughs> <laughs> carry on, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> the format for these minisodes between full shows is, for the next half hour or so, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up, and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately. And today's theme was suggested by a patron, Mary, who asked us to talk about so-called sad girl novels. So let's jump straight in with the question. Carrie Plitt, what are the books that come to mind when I say sad girl novel or sad girl lit? And do you have any favorites? I think it's important first to define what we're talking about when we talk about sad girl lit. Love the definition, this woman, my God. Because, because, well, I had a vague idea, but I didn't. I I wasn't fully aware. And in case any of our listeners kind of haven't come across the term, let's, uh, you know, let me define. And I'm actually going to steal my definition from Giselle Nguyen, who interviewed the writer Pip Finkemeyer in The Guardian. Basically, it was about the sad girl novel. And she defined it as 20-something woman, likely white and middle class, has a crisis, is selfish, does messy, chaotic things. Sometimes she might have a revelation, other times she won't. She's often unlikable, she's usually untrustworthy, but she is, above all, relatable. Do you think that's fair? Yeah. I mean, 
I have so much to say about it, but yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Wait, didn't Pip Finkelmeyer actually write a book called Sad Girl Novel? She did, yes. So there's a lot going on there and we'll get into much more of that, but we'll, we'll start with that. And basically when I hear that and when I, when I hear Sad Girl Novels, I know that these have been around long before millennials. You know, people often point to the bell jar, for instance, or or even I think Sylvia Plath is a kind of version of this, although not a perfect fit. But the first name that comes to mind is Sally Rooney. Yeah. Just because I think her her characters and style are now the kind of stick against which all sad and distance female characters are measured against. And it's interesting because I think of Sally Rooney when I hear sad girl novel, but when I think about my experience of reading conversations with friends and normal people in particular, I wasn't thinking about them as novels through this frame or in the context of their protagonists and the way they feel or the way they relate to themselves. Um, and I certainly wasn't thinking about whether they were relatable or not. I was much more interested in the subtle ways that Sally Rooney was depicting power in relationships and the way it shifts and also the internal lives of her characters and how, right. and how she accessed that. And it's so interesting to me that the thing that's kind of emerged from this is this ironic perception of distance and a certain kind of female, basically. Yeah, agreed. I, I mean, in terms of things that I've really loved that might fall into this category, more recently, I really enjoyed Sheena Patel's I'm a Fan, who, of yes. course, we interviewed on the show. And I think she's writing a version of the Sad Girl novel, but she's bringing race and anger into the equation in a way that felt like it was reflecting the form, but pushing it in new directions, basically. I think that's amazing. The other kind of archetype that comes to mind is not a book, but is a show, which is Fleabag. Mm, um, yeah, interesting. Which again really fits that description and was unanimously praised when it came out. And then I guess this always happened with something that's so beloved, but then I think a lot of criticism started to come out about it. And I think it's maybe even embarrassing now a little bit or perceived as embarrassing to say that you loved Fleabag. But I did love Fleabag and especially the second series for all kinds of reasons beyond the main character and her her neurotic selfishness. But what I will say is that I do remember a feeling of liberation of seeing a woman who was messy, grieving, fucking up constantly. And in 2016, it did feel fresh and it did feel like it wasn't done very often. And it's funny to me how quickly it became a trope and something that was passe and something that was called the sad girl novel or the sad girl story. How about you? What do you think of and do you have any favorites? Well, listening to you talk about Fleabag, I was also thinking about Lena Dunham's character in Girls, which mm, is another show that like yeah. was beloved at the time. And then there was backtracking about it and very, very fair criticisms levied at it. But I still think it was kind of a remarkable program and those characters were really new. It felt very fresh at the time. And I really enjoyed watching it. And I still think that that Hannah Horvath character was a bit of a, a moment in the kind of understanding of millennial character archetypes, right? But yeah, I totally agree with you about I'm a fan. It feels like such a brilliant confrontation with how reductive the sad girl lit form can be. And what I love about it, like you, is the anger and the kind of 
ferocity of it. And actually, I think it's a book that calls out all of the unacknowledged things that are happening in conversations about the genre. As you say, it calls out race, it calls out class, it calls out privilege, it also calls out capitalism as a kind of driving force of people's malaise and of women's sadness in particular. So I think it's very, very clever kind of spin on everything. Also, you know, I hesitate to call this a genre. I mean, as you say, we'll get into that, so I'm going to save it. But spoiler alert, we're definitely going to have to talk about misogyny. But yes, you mentioned The Bell Jar, which Mary also referenced in her question. And, you know, that was published in 1963, so long before the word millennial ever entered the lexicon. And I actually don't think it fits the brief, as you outlined it in in Nguyen's words, because, sure, the protagonist is young, white, middle class, so is the author, whatever, but she's also suffering from very acute mental illness and she ends up having electric shock therapy. And I just think that takes it so far beyond the kind of cultural ennui that the sad girl protagonist is usually dealing with. I mean, I haven't read that book for a really long time. I remember being profoundly affected by it when I did. I remember finding parts of it relatable and parts of it totally unrelatable because she steps over the line into this much more severe experience of mental instability than anything I could relate to. So I could relate to some of the malaise, I could relate to some of the kind of disjointed experience of reality, and then there was something that I could no longer relate to. Same. I think I, and it was weird that it's sold to young women as something that's deeply relatable. Because I think that's probably the experience of many people who read it. Yeah, I agree. And and as it should be, right? Like, I think one of the things that from memory anyway, that book does well is it shows that like, you can be in this incredibly so-called relatable position and still tip over into mental illness because mental illness can happen to anyone and isn't something to be othered, right? The other book Mary referenced in her question was My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Tessa Moshfeg, which obviously is a novel that comes up often on the show. And we interviewed a Tessa about it a few years ago. And I would say that's one of my favorites that could kind of fit into the genre because much like I'm a fan, I think it's such a, it's kind of a biting satire around the whole sad girl project. And also like a fan, it has a kind of dark humor to it and also a mercilessness that's kind of invigorating and and sort of sick and delightful to read. (laughs) But I would also throw into the mix The Pisces by Melissa Broder who uh, is another author, also American, who kind of satirized the whole sad girl persona on her Twitter feed, which became hugely successful many, many years ago. And um, also in a book of essays called So Sad Today, which I've actually not read. But the Pisces, as regular listeners will know, (laughs) I loved. And I'm including it because I think it's another one that expands the category beyond simply focusing on the sense of kind of ennui or inertia or depression or emotional dysfunction. So with the protagonist, she is feeling all of those things. And she is a white woman of privilege. She's a PhD student. She's conventionally attractive, blah, blah, blah. But Rhoda takes her completely off the deep end and has her fall into this dark sexual fantasy world where she is having a really hot sexual relationship with a merman. And so we're no longer in sad girl literary territory. We're right into the kind of hunger and darkness that can be squashed by those depressive feelings. And so Broda's kind of trying to get beneath the ennui and be like, what's really going on underneath that kind of disconnection, right? But it left me thinking, like, apart from Sally Rooney, we've basically said that the ones we like are satirical versions. So like, who are the originals? Would you say it was like Madame Bovary? Is she the original literary sad girl? (laughs) 
Or that's a good question. I maybe, I guess, or or Anna Karenina. I mean, I think what's happening is that when you start to pick apart the term, it falls apart. Because none of these authors are actually trying to write sad girl lit. I mean, maybe the things that qualify most under that definition that I brought up at the beginning are actually imitators of books that take some of the literary nuance out of the equation and therefore become something that's more easily satirized. Right. Well, it basically, it becomes an aesthetic in some way. And it's more about how they are referred to in the culture than actually the content of the books themselves, right? Yeah. And, And the sad girl is the is the like 50th novel with a woman with her face in a cake rather than <laughs> yeah. Madame Bovary, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who was always more than a sad girl. Yeah. And was unknown to put her face in cakes. Yeah. <laughs> she might have. She may well have done, yeah. She, she was, was a crazy bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you feel about the term? Let's get into it. Let's dig into it. Yeah. I mean, I think we foreshadowed this pretty strongly, but I do not love it. And I don't deny the existence of a trend for this kind of story. And it's interesting to think about why our culture seems to be hungry for this kind of narrative and narrator at this particular time, because it so clearly is. Although trends are complicated in themselves because they're driven as much by publishers as they are by writers or or readers. But they are, you know, these are publishers responding to a desire from readers and these books are selling and they continue to sell. Even so... I would argue that complex female narrators are actually just what we might call humans. (laughs) (laughs) And calling any woman who has a crisis in a novel a sad girl is is a flattening and actually a mocking term. It's very patronizing. It's telling that they're called girls, not women. Um, It lumps books together that are extremely different from one another. It doesn't approach them on their own terms. And... Some of them can be rightly criticized for some of the things we've been talking about, you know, not examining the privileges of their characters enough, not really going far enough when thinking about mental illness or ennui, or also the criticism of them being derivative. But ultimately, it's smacks of misogyny. And I'm sure you have more to say on that, Octavia. <laughs> I love it when you lob me a winning, oh, I'm trying to reach for a tennis metaphor and I don't play tennis, so I can't find it. What would I say? A winning shot. Yeah. Um, although then you would, I'd be lobbing you something, which you would then smash back at me and win a point, so, oh, which, no. fe- which feels too confrontational. What's a more collaborative sport? <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm like, maybe we're playing some kind of beach paddle board game and I'm just like hitting a really easy lob at you so you can just lob it right back to me okay there we go painting the picture <laughs> I have not fallen off my paddle board yes yeah, I you wouldn't be on you wouldn't be riding the paddle board by the way it would, it would it's more like a, a little pat a wooden paddle Oh, I thought we were both on paddle boards. Oh, we could be. <laughs> I was like in with the jeopardy. Okay, we're just playing like ping pong on a beach. Yeah. Nice. Very nice. Well, yeah. Thank you for the ball. Um, <laughs> I would love to talk about the misogyny, as you say. I mean, I agree with everything that you just said. And absolutely the thing about, you know, calling women who are in their 20s girls. Big problem there. 
And I also think it's it's a way of of packaging up the pain of young women and lumping it all together in order to to dismiss it as a monolith, right? So mm. I think it's a reaction to something that started to feel quite cynical and not necessarily, as you say, in terms of the characters that writers are bringing to life, you know, complex characters who are not just there to be like the pretty upbeat, you know, fantasy women that we see in in plenty of novels from the early 20th century. But I think it's so much more to do with how these books are being marketed and the perception of of who the readers of them were, the readers themselves also being so-called sad girls, right? And like you said, the covers with women with their faces down in cakes or lying on the floor. And, and again, we return to this like very disquieting time where the image of a woman's body was being anonymized by her face being covered. And I think that that's uneasy making for me. And, you know, capitalism is a system that has a long, long history of inducing and enlarging and then capitalizing on women's sadness in particular, right? Women are the kind of prime group that products are marketed at. They are still seen as the spenders in the household. So it feels knotty and complicated to disentangle for that reason. And I think, you know, it's really important not to forget that one of the kind of ways misogyny operates is by not differentiating between women as individuals, but instead lumping all so-called feminized experiences together into a single block and then chucking it out the window, right? And so if anything, I think that the problem really lies with, you know, the industry and its gatekeepers, because it's to do with the fact that this experience of like crisis and self-absorption and messy, chaotic behavior, I think that is just fairly representative of being in one's 20s, regardless of your gender, regardless of your class and wealth, regardless of your background in any other kind of way. And so if anything, I would argue that we need more stories about this with protagonists from all walks of life. Because if the fact that the thing these characters have in common is their whiteness or their wealth or their thinness, which is another thing, right? The literary sad girl is always very skinny. It's because the industry bias that dictates what kind of stories get published. I'm sure there are writers out there writing these kinds of narratives of young adult characters going through all this stuff who are not that stereotype and they're just not reaching readers. I also think, like, to return to the misogyny idea, I'm fairly certain that there are plenty of books with straight male protagonists who are experiencing crisis and being messy as fuck and self-absorbed, and they've never been called sad boy lit. I think they are commonly simply known as literature. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, because again, like, ennui, dissatisfaction, conflicted behavior, all of this is at the heart of all human experience. You cannot avoid those feelings and be a fully realized human being and on the page, a fully realized character. So... It just smacks again of classical misogyny that that the state of male dissatisfaction is allowed to be the unquestioned baseline, right? But when women are, su- are feeling it, it becomes a trend. I mean, I guess the only kind of masculine equivalent I could think of was like the neurotic middle-aged man in crisis, like kind of every Philip Roth book ever written. I think it's also important to put it within the heterosexual context because that's the kind of male story that I'm not that interested in reading either. Like, I don't want to read about some straight fuck boy who's like messy with women because he hasn't figured himself out yet. Mm. But I'm much more interested in queer male narratives that are exploring that kind of state. And I think those books are being published at the moment. But yes, I guess the thing is when it's male characters, perhaps 
this it's allowed to be part of a bigger story, right? Whereas when it's female characters, it still gets reduced to being the main story. Definitely. Um, I mean, when I Googled sad girl lit or sad girl novel, The Guardian immediately came up with five different links related to it, which made me think like, wow, is it just becoming a thing because journalists insist on making it a thing? <laughs> and I mean, if that's the case, like, what do you think the appeal is of those kinds of articles? Like, what is the appeal of the genre itself? And like the fact that people are publishing all this stuff, trying to force it into being a trend, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a difference between the appeal of the genre and the like appeal of talking about the right. genre, as you say. So in terms of the appeal of the genre, I do think we live in a culture in which some of these behaviors are still policed and discouraged. Yes. Like even if they're showing up in women in fiction, it's not allowed still sometimes to fuck up, to mess up. And it can be liberating to read about that in mm. fiction. And I think that is part of the appeal. And and as I was saying before, I do think it was less common to see just a very messy woman in fiction. And and that's exciting. It's also just a more accurate description of reality. Like people are sad and anxious and make bad decisions. As you say, it's 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 human. And so that that's part of it. I also think that we live in a very alienating time. And so I'm not surprised that so many characters in literature are also alienated. I think it's reflecting how we feel. And people are interested in novels that reflect how they yeah. feel. So so I do think there's an appeal. It was interesting to read. There was one of the many articles in The Guardian was talking about the authors who made the sad girl novel grow up, which was an interesting framing. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> the author, Eliza Clark, was saying that basically the sad girl novel is like a rich, posh girl's version of what being bad is, but it's still very safe and not actually completely dark. And that that's interesting. Mm. I'm not sure I agree it's the main fascination, but it's like, if you think about it, it's true that sad girl novels, like part of the archetype is they're not really messing up that much. You know, they're like adjacent to trauma. Right. They still have a roof over their heads. Yeah. And they've got yeah. parents who can bail them out, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. But in terms of the buzz around the genre, again, we get back to misogyny because I think we live in a culture that is both totally obsessed by, but also deeply afraid of mm -hmm. young women. Um, and so any trend that centers them is going to be an object of fascination. So I, I often think that young women are driving the culture too. And I read or listened to, I have no source for this. <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> Carrie, you just pulling it out of your ass on you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it was some kind of thing that was, that was saying that in language, changes in the language usually start with young women. I think it was in the context of vocal fry, which has now taken over our language, but started with young women, but like lots of other things do. And so like people who are interested in how language change often look to young women to see how it does. So that's interesting. That's very interesting. But related to that, people love to mock young women. Um, they don't take them seriously. And writing about sad girl lit is a way to be snarky and superior about women. Yeah. And the tone of this stuff is always so superior. It's so dismissive of the people reading it or who love any kind of book like this. And I also think a lot of people who talk about Sad Girl Lit are like, oh, people love it because it's relatable. And I actually think that might be true for some readers, but most readers, even young women, aren't just reading books so that they can relate to the characters. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it really annoys me when that's how people write about reading. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Well, it's so patronizing as if young women haven't 
spent their lives reading books that are not about their experience because they have to read so much about male experience, right? Yeah, I'm with you. And I also think that, yeah, Eliza's point that the stakes for the so-called kind of badness or messiness are obviously very, very different when a character is white and wealthy, right? And those structural contexts are important to interrogate. Also, again, the point that like, there was a moment where people were kind of, I guess, trying to almost call Sally Rooney out for the fact that her protagonists are always very thin. And again, I just think sometimes that stuff is being directed in the wrong direction. Like Sally Rooney can write whatever protagonists feel authentic to the story she's telling. But let's kind of call out the industry and say like, why aren't there more stories about fat characters? Why aren't there more stories about, you know, people who don't fit this like cultural mold that we're kind of exhausted by because it's a standard that, you know, women are expected to live up to and that in itself still needs interrogating, right? Like, I just think sometimes the conversations around these things go in the wrong direction, basically. Definitely. So for the most part, as we've said, these sad girls have been white, conventionally attractive, almost unilaterally straight or maybe bi, but like mainly straight, I I would say. So do you think that that has made it become a problematic trope? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely problematic. (laughs) That is problematic. It's a problem that this is the norm or assumed to be the norm because it suggests that the only women who are allowed to do this and who we should be paying attention to and whose pain is interesting enough to pay attention to are white, middle-class, conventionally attractive, straight, women. But beyond that, it's problematic because it's just tiring to hear from from similar protagonists over and over again. But as you were saying, this has less to do with the writers and more to do with the books that the industry is pushing, I think. Mm. Yeah. And this relatability thing is interesting because I think that if that is the case, that is problematic, right? Right. (laughs) That people like, there's like a transference and over-identification going on with these protagonists who are often kind of satirical anyway. But I wonder if that's overstated. I think there's a lot of like, like hand wringing about like TikTok <laughs> and, <laughs> and like Colleen Hoover, which is another version of this. And like, wait, what? Do you know Colleen Hoover? No. She's this writer who's like on all of the bestseller lists. I haven't read her books, but she's huge on TikTok. And that's kind of why she became so popular. And all of her books are these kind of like, according to descriptions, very maudlin books that are about trauma. Okay. And they're very, very popular. And I think a lot of people worry about people will go on TikTok like sobbing, holding Colleen Hoover's book and saying like, this book changed my life. And it'll be a book about like suicide. I do think like the way that people talk about it is a little bit patronizing, but also sometimes I do worry about losing a little bit of critical distance with storytelling. Mm. But is that problematic? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting. Like, it's not as if that's new, right? Like, do you remember that other very dismissive term that was around, I feel like in like the late aughts, or maybe it was the early aughts, late nineties, mislit that was about like... And that mismems. Mismems. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's ridiculously (laughs) degrading and, you know, Making they make things small, these terms, right? And that was about these, like, I remember the conversation around those was like memoirs or novels that were about, you know, really profound trauma, like a child called it was the the big one. But that also, again, like the conversation around that needed to ask questions about exploitation, right? And like, was the industry exploiting these people who were writing very, you know, 
detailed stories of their extreme traumas they'd survived. And there was this kind of hunger for those kinds of stories. But essentially, I think there's always hunger for those kinds of stories because life is violent and random and awful for a lot of people. And sadness is unavoidable. And trauma of, you know, small t trauma is something that most people experience. Big t trauma is like, thankfully, something that far fewer people experience, but enough that it's uh, something that people connect to in writing, right? So like, I think that it's, I think it's a very complicated thing to talk about in some respects. I also think that I, I'm totally with you on what you're saying. The flip side of it though, is that that collapse between like the reader's identity and the identity of the characters that she's reading about is I think one of the great joys of literature and of reading. And that for me anyway, as a reader is that kind of transformative power that I'm looking for when I'm reading. And the whole point is that like, good writing means that those boundaries between me and the character will collapse regardless of how like the character I am. And that's, you know, one of the things that that literature can offer you as a reader. You can become all of these other characters that have nothing to do with your life and, and what you're like. And in doing so, you can learn something new or you can experience the world through a different set of, of eyes. So if you're only drawn to reading books about characters that seem very like yourself, like if you are a white middle-class woman who's straight and you're only reading books about straight white middle-class women, then I would challenge you and say that you are having a very, very meager and narrow reading experience. And I would also say that politically you should like think about that (laughs) for yourself. And I also, I wrote down this quote because one of those Guardian pieces um, was a conversation between Atessa Moshveg and the author Carmen Maria Machado, who is another author that we have had on the show. <laughs> I guess we love sad girl lit. <laughs> but she, um, Atessa was saying to Carmen that, and I'm quoting, one thing that I've noticed about the new attention to my year of rest and relaxation. So she's talking about, I think it being kind of revived interest on that book through TikTok. So Atessa says, is that it seems to have this one fan group of like people that call themselves sad girls. And that concerns me, just as someone who was a younger woman with depression. When my older sister read it, she said, this should come with a warning label on it. Maybe it should, because guys, this is a satire. This is not real. And we live in an age where everything is so distorted that I don't want anyone overdosing on Ambien because they read my book. So evidently, there is a collapsing going on that you know makes the author herself uneasy about the kind of role that her book has come to play and i think that's interesting right and probably also again that kind of always like fueled by the discourse around this kind of storytelling and this kind of story yeah that is interesting i was just thinking as you were talking that if you study literature part of what you're studying is to have critical distance from the text. But in a way, you're right that one of the pleasures of reading is not having critical distance. Hell yeah. And I, I think we can get too caught up in that, especially if we've been students of literature, that that we have to kind of be analyzing everything as we're reading it. But I think you can have that like analytical voice in your head, but it's also, it's not a bad thing to feel connected to characters. Maybe it is a bad thing if you then take a lot of ambience. <laughs> Maybe that is the line. <laughs> That's the line. So what about if we flipped it on its head? Carrie Plitt, is, is this going to be the age of happy girl lit? <laughs> which I really said is happy girl clit, which I hope for everyone that it is. <laughs> 
well, let's get rid of girls. Yeah. I mean, unless they're actually okay, um, you had it hit first. Get rid of the girls. Get, get rid of all girls. That would be bad. But yeah, the problem with that is that completely happy people aren't very interesting. I don't. I'm not sure. I want to read very much happy girl lit. Maybe what we need is not a swing of the pendulum, but to just have fully realized protagonists who are happy sometimes, who are sad sometimes, who are from all different classes and backgrounds, and who fuck up a little sometimes, like all normal people do. So that's what I want. I want normal girl. (laughs) I was going to say, then we have to do a a breakdown of what normal means and does not mean, Carrie. Whatever. Anyway, what I will say, and I think I've said this before on the show, I'm a little tired of ironic distance in stories. I believe you and, have said that. Before. Yeah, I know. I've said it every show. <laughs> anyway, I want sincerity. I want characters who aren't at such a remove from themselves. But again, it's all in the telling. There will be sad girls that come along from masterful writers that I fall in love with all over again. But in the meantime, I'm off to read a big family saga <laughs> and not ironic white sad girls. How about you? Yeah, I'm with you on all of it. No more girls. Let women be women. <laughs> let women be women and live live rich, complicated, textured lives. And maybe let's stop creating trends. Let's stop like supporting them. And maybe let's keep an eye out for when they seem to come along and then ask structural questions about why. I think that's the important yes. thing to do. Okay, well, we'll be back shortly with our cultural recommendations that are not books. Okay, we are back here, Carrie and Octavia, to talk to you about some stuff we've done lately that isn't reading and that we are excited about. So Carrie Plitt, tell me, what is your first recommendation? My first recommendation is the film Witness. Ooh. I admit I hadn't even heard about it until recently when for some reason it came up in a staff meeting at work. And my colleague Caroline could not believe that none of the millennial and Gen Z colleagues had seen it or even heard of it. But I think basically the title confused me because I thought it must be a kind of run of the mill 80s movie about like a trial and a witness who takes the stand. You think it was going to have Liam Neeson in it, basically. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. But instead, it is about Harrison Ford going to live with the Amish. (laughs) No. It was made in 1985. The premise is basically that a young Amish boy witnesses a murder in a train station. And Harrison Ford is a detective in the city that has been assigned to the case. But then it becomes clear that the murder is an inside job and the boy's life and Harrison Ford's life is at risk. And so they must go back to the community and hide along with the boy's mother to protect themselves. And I should say the boy's father has has just died. And what I loved about this movie is that it's really thrilling. There are some, you know, gunfights and car chases and you don't know what's going to happen and they're in danger. But it is also a movie that pays serious attention to life in an Amish community and isn't afraid to take its time doing that. It's just stunning. It's a beautiful movie. There's a riveting scene, which was probably my favorite scene in the whole movie, where they're building a barn and Harrison Ford is helping them build this barn. And it's just 
incredible. You see the bard go up and how they do it. And it's also so sexy without having much nudity. It's a movie that really understands longing. There's there's a lot of sexual chemistry between Harrison Ford and Kelly McGillis, who plays the the mother. It's great. It's also directed by Peter Weir, who you might know, he directed The Truman Show, amongst many other great movies, and who I am kind of newly obsessed with after watching Master and Commander, another movie I assumed I really wouldn't love, but has a similar obsession with like world building and detail without losing its human center. In this case, you know, it's like a movie about what it's like to be on a ship. And yeah, I just, please watch Witness. Okay. I mean, you've sold so it good. to me. You've really, really <laughs> sold it to me. <laughs> so I think I had to buy it on the TV, but it's worth the like four pounds or whatever that you pay. Okay. I That will not be difficult for me to sell that to John. He loves 80s movies. Oh my God. I'm really interested to know what you think. There are some things that have not held up, especially in relation to race. So I'm interested to know what you think about that yeah. as well. well. Apparently the, the Amish 80s. did not love this movie oh either. So that's also unsurprising. I don't think the 80s were a good time for like Amish representation. <laughs> no, no. But, but go watch it. What's, what's your recommendation? Mine is the TV adaptation of Pachinko, which oh, I just, I don't really know where to start. I was a bit nervous to watch it because I really, really loved the novel, which I read on your recommendation. And I just, I, I was so absorbed by it. I thought it was phenomenal. But I also like... I think, you know, as often happens with those big epic family stories, like I miss the characters. And I think that's one of the things that when a big long novel like that becomes a TV show, like one of the great things about it is it allows you to go back to these characters that you got to know and that maybe you miss. So that was kind of what drew me back to it. And oh my God. So I'm only halfway through, I'm only four episodes of eight, I think, but I feel very confident to sing its praises. Each episode is an hour long and each one feels like a kind of perfectly crafted movie. And two out of the four has had me and John both sobbing on the sofa. It's so moving. It's so powerfully done. And then the book is very moving. You know, these are these are very, very moving stories. But the way that they've done it, I mean, everything from the production design, the lighting costumes, the period pieces, and the acting is really exquisite. It also has a wonderful, wonderful credit sequence that a bit like the succession credit sequence has kind of photos from the past and then brings you up to date and you meet all the characters but there's this amazing bit where they're in the pachinko parlor and they're all just dancing and all of the characters come together even characters who would not come together in time if that makes sense which is just really fun but basically if you don't know the story it's this multi-generational epic that's set in the during the japanese occupation of korea and beyond so the fate of this particular family is that Sanja, the protagonist, has to move to Japan as a young woman because of something that happens to her back in Japanese-occupied Korea. And um, so it's a bilingual story and characters switch between Japanese and Korean. Some characters only speak Korean, some characters only speak Japanese. And with the subtitles, they use different colors for each of these two languages. And so sometimes when certain characters who are moving between these languages very quickly or even they switch back and forth within the same sentence, you get this mixture of blue and yellow subtitles. So you get a really brilliant visualized understanding of how these two cultures merged through their languages and then the ways in which they stayed very separate. Um, so that's one of the things I think often when you watch a program or a show where you don't speak the language and you're, you're watching it with subtitles, it can feel like, I can feel anxious that I'm losing a lot, but actually I find in the way they do it, I feel like I'm also gaining something because of how they represent it on the screen. It's just very thoughtful. 
And I think, you know, you really then understand how this communication in these different languages is affecting the characters that are on screen at the time. But I, I won't say more. I just, it's so beautiful. I think it's a very carefully rendered adaptation. Like obviously there are shifts in some of the storylines from the novel or the intensity or the, I don't know, certain things about the characters' relationships feel slightly different because they're on screen rather than in in the text. But I think it's faithful. It seems so far anyway to be fairly faithful. And even if you've not read the novel, it would be a beautiful thing to watch. But I think if you have read the novel, it will be really, really wonderful. Oh, I'm so glad you recommended that. It feels comparable to the Elena Ferrante adaptation. Oh, okay. You know, I can't wait. Yeah. That's so exciting. Yeah. Okay. I can't wait to hear what you think of it. What is your next one? As you know, one of the great things that has happened to me in the last few years is that I have gotten into the New York Times crossword. <laughs> is it one of the great things? I mean, it's great yes, for you. It is. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, for me, not for anyone else. I, if anything, it's made other people's experience of me worse, but it's great for me. Um, it has been so, so gratifying to slowly learn a skill and see myself getting better at it, even if it means nothing. And the crossword is genuinely one of the highlights of my day, every day. Well, a new highlight of my day is now also another New York Times word game called Connections. Oh, I played this. Yes. Um, Basically, it's a grid of 16 words, and you have to group um, them into four groups of four words, all of which are connected in some way. There's only one way to solve the puzzle. It doesn't take very long. Sometimes it's pretty easy, sometimes a little, little bit harder, but it's a nice little confection every morning. And it's so satisfying when you figure it out and it's really fun. And apparently this is not a new concept and it has been featured on some shows like Only Connect, which I know people are angry about. <laughs> oh I'm <God>. sorry, <laughs> but I would really recommend giving it a try. That sounds it's, fun. It's delightful. It is fun. I would also love to get better at crosswords. I have a bit of a block because my parents always used to do the cryptic crosswords and I found it really annoying when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. I can't do the cryptic ones. I don't understand those. So maybe that's my next project. Yeah. We could do it together. Yeah, I would be up for doing it together. It's fun when you do it with someone. It is fun, but it's frustrating also. Also, by the way, what happens to Wordle? No one talks about Wordle anymore. Oh, I still do Wordle every day. I still play it sometimes, <laughs> but yeah, not yeah. every day. I guess it's not like a cultural phenomenon anymore. I also, I play Wordle and then I look at WordleBot, which is like this computer that solves Wordle in the like best way possible that it can find. And it compares what you did to what it did and then what other people did. Carrie, that's deep. That's a deep dive. <laughs> I think a lot of people do this. Wow. It would never even occur to me. It's fun. I do Wordle and then I go in Wordlebot. That's because your core characteristic is that you are competitive, <laughs> even with yourself. <laughs> and mine is that I am delighted when I finish something and then I'm onto something different. That's so funny. Well, I'm so happy for you that you're so content. Well done. <laughs> That's not what I meant. <laughs> no, um, I know, I know. What's your, what's your next recommendation? My next one is, I'm really actually just really pleased to be able to talk about this. It's a podcast called The Good Thief, which is made by our very own completely brilliant producers, Daphne Carnesis and George Miaris, which also in a totally wild colliding of worlds was executive produced by my very dear friend, Kate Osborne with her company Kaleidoscope Media. So they came together in this kind of crack team and as well as editing and producing what you are listening to right now, Daphne and George make loads of other really fantastic audio as part of their company, The Greek Podcast Project. And that's, 
you know, they were collaborating with these, uh, I think, iHeartRadio and Kaleidoscope to make this really fantastic. It's incredibly high octane, I guess, kind of true crimey, but that sounds reductive to me about what it is. Basically, it's about this guy called Vasilis Paleokostas, who was the so-called Greek Robin Hood. And he's a fascinating character. And of course, he is part of a milieu of other really fascinating characters. So this this podcast is just packed full of really, really interesting, quite elusive people. But basically, Vasilis Paleokostas, over 20 years, pulled off some of Greece's like most wild and inventive bank heists and, you know, like incredible escapes, including twice breaking free from Greece's maximum security prison by helicopter. By helicopter. He was picked up (laughs) by helicopter. Like, can you get your head around that? So, you know, he, he becomes this kind of folk hero figure in the Greek sort of narrative. And it's it's largely because he casts himself as a thief with a heart. So he only steals from those who he considers deserving of it, like the super, super rich. And then he shares his spoils with his community. And he comes from this mountainous region in, in Greece where um, people are not wealthy. And there's all these kind of incredible stories about him and his brother and his mentor and like stealing people's cars and then returning them filled with cash, right? Like, it's fascinating. It's also like very high energy. So you kind of, you get swept along by the storytelling. And my heart was absolutely in my mouth. There's this one bit where George and Daphne's husband, whose name is also George, like take to the hills and try and track some people down. And I'm there listening to their voices, just like, oh my God, are they going to do it? Are they going to find them? So yeah, I, I think it's it's a great piece of audio. I really recommend it. Oh, I can't wait to listen. Yeah, you'll, you'll and not that. just because I love Daphne. <laughs> no, I mean it's also <laughs> they're so great, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it, everyone. That's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much as ever for listening, and we will be back in your feed soon with another full show. This time, we're speaking to the author Kay Patrick, and we cannot wait. 